Hello, everyone, and welcome to the November 11th edition of the WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Foles, an attorney with the Floyd Scarron Law Firm. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. A judge has extended the litigation stay for Purdue Pharma. A bankruptcy judge temporarily extended the protection, halting scores of lawsuits against Purdue Pharma until next April. The order continues a temporary injunction that was put in place last month and expired this November. Purdue Pharma, the maker of OxyContin, filed for bankruptcy on September 15 as part of a broad opioid settlement proposal with 24 states, but that is opposed by some states and the District of Columbia. Oklahoma and Kentucky separately have already settled with Purdue Pharma. Officials representing the dissenting states and a number of municipalities have objected to the temporary injunction. But some reached a deal with Purdue Pharma on Wednesday agreeing to voluntarily comply with the temporary injunction. This agreement allows those states to change their minds later and fight the injunction. The owners of Purdue, the Sackler family, has agreed for the first time to provide more personal financial information. But an attorney representing creditors said progress had been slow and strained. Oxycontin, which had been blamed as a major driver of America's opioid epidemic, makes up about 90% of Purdue Pharma's sales. Purdue Pharma said during the hearing that it has started looking for an outside monitor as part of its negotiations. The company also has agreed to new restrictions on its behavior during the bankruptcy, including limiting its lobbying efforts. The Superior Court issued an order appointing the California Department of Insurance uh, Conservation and Liquidation Office as conservator of California Insurance Company, which was being sold by Berkshire Hathaway. With less than 48 hours notice to California, company officials attempted to transfer the ownership of California Domiciled California Insurance Company to a New Mexico entity called California Insurance Company 2. The California Department of Insurance denied an application for approval of the sale of the California Insurance Company on October 18. The conservator is now allowed to take immediate possession of the workers' compensation carrier. This action is in response to the company's alleged willful violation of state law and established pattern of continually flouting California's regulatory process. The Department of Insurance sought the order after company officials unilaterally and, they claim, illegally attempted to merge its business with the New Mexico-based insurer without first securing the department's prior approval. The order also blocks the attempted merger, which seeks to divest California of its regulatory oversight over this entity. The Department of Insurance claims that without this action, employer, policyholders, employees, and other claimants will be left holding policies of a non-admitted insurer not qualified to transact insurance in California. The conservator will, to the full extent of the law, 
ensure that California insurance company policyholders remain covered under their existing policies and retain the full protections provided to them under California law. Other states, including Vermont, Wisconsin, New York, and New Jersey, have also taken regulatory actions against the same company for engaging in similar unapproved transactions within those states. And now our crime report. The embattled ex-CEO of a string of now-shuttered Merced-area health clinics that served thousands of low-income patients signed an agreement to plead guilty to defrauding Medi-Cal of millions of dollars. 59-year-old Sandra Har of Merced was sentenced to five years in prison in order to pay more than $6 million in restitution. Har was ordered to surrender next January to begin serving her sentence. Har was the founder and chief executive officer of Horizons Unlimited, a nonprofit public benefit corporation that provided health and dental services in Merced and surrounding communities. She was a nurse practitioner who had been CEO of the clinic since its opening in 2004. Har orchestrated a scheme to bill Medicare and Medi-Cal for services she knew were not reimbursable, and she profited by over $3.7 million from her fraud. For example, Har billed for health and dental services that were not rendered and for unnecessary health care services. <clears throat> she also billed for office visits with purportedly licensed doctors when the patients instead were dispensed Suboxone, an opioid medication, in the parking lots of McDonald's and Rite Aid in baggies. Har also received thousands of dollars in kickbacks in cash from an account executive at a laboratory in exchange for using it for patients' laboratory testing. Drug law enforcement officers from China and the United States participated in a rare combined effort in cracking down on fentanyl crimes in both countries. China's Total Narcotics Control Commission and its National Narcotics Control Commission and enforcement officers from both countries assisted each other in a fentanyl smuggling case that was jointly uncovered by both sides. Reporters will be able to view a live broadcast of the trial of the perpetrators at the Exangtai court. Fentanyl is a cheap, relatively easy to synthesize opioid painkiller, 50 times more important than heroin. It has played a major role in a devastating U.S. opioid addiction crisis. U.S. officials say China is the main source of illicit fentanyl and fentanyl-related substances. It is trafficked into the United States, much of it through international mail. But China denies that most of the illicit fentanyl entering the United States originates in China. President Donald Trump accused Chinese President Xi Jinping oust last August of failing to meet his promises to crack down on the deluge of fentanyl and fentanyl analogs flowing into the United States. But China labeled that accusation blatant slander. The dispute over fentanyl comes with the United States in the middle of a major trade dispute with China.
China's National Narcotics Control Commission said in September that Sino-U.S. cooperation on investigating and prosecuting fentanyl-related substances was extremely limited. This was even though counter-narcotics law enforcement departments from both sides had long maintained a good cooperative relationship. This sudden show of new cooperation coincides with intense bilateral negotiations over a Phase 1 trade agreement which Trump said he hoped to sign. The Drug Enforcement Administration is alerting the public of dangerous counterfeit pills that are killing Americans. Mexican drug cartels are manufacturing mass quantities of counterfeit prescription pills that contain fentanyl. Based on a sampling of tablets recently seized nationwide, the DEA found that 27% contained potentially lethal doses of fentanyl. Authorities say that drug trafficking organizations are now sending counterfeit pills made with fentanyl in bulk to the United States for distribution. Fentanyl and other highly potent synthetic opioids remain the primary driver behind the ongoing opioid crisis, with fentanyl involved in more deaths than any other illicit drug. Much of U.S. fentanyl originates in China, but is pressed into pills in Mexico and then smuggled into the United States. A lethal dose of fentanyl is estimated to be about 2 milligrams, but can vary based on individual's body size, tolerance, amount of previous usage, and other factors. The full fentanyl signature profiling program report on the recent drug sampling and testing is now available on the DEA.gov website. And in regulatory news, a single one-way air ambulance ride to UCLA cost more money than the double lung transplant surgery the patient received when he got there after this 27-mile trip. Balance billing, better known as surprise billing, occurs when a patient receives care from a medical provider outside of his insurance plan's network. And then the provider bills the patient for the amount insurance did not cover. These bills can soar into the tens of thousands of dollars. Surprise bills hit an estimated one in six insured Americans after a stay in the hospital. And the air ambulance industry, with its private equity backing, high upfront costs, and frequent out-of-network status is among the worst offenders. Congress is considering legislation aimed at addressing surprise bills and air ambulance charges. And some states, including California, are trying to address the problem, even though there are limits to what they can do, because air ambulances are primarily regulated by federal aviation authorities. Here's an example of how a surprise bill might work. 63-year-old Tom Saputo was diagnosed with idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. This is a progressive disease that scars lung tissue. The retired Thousand Oaks, California graphic designer got on the list for a double lung transplant at UCLA. And he started the pre-approval process with his insurance company, Anthem Blue Cross, should organs become available. 
But before a transplant could be arranged, he suddenly stopped breathing on the evening of July 7, 2018. So his wife called 911. A ground ambulance drove the couple to Los Robles Regional Medical Center in Thousand Oaks, which was 15 minutes from their house. There, Mr. Saputo spent four days in the intensive care unit before his doctor sent him to UCLA by air ambulance. He was on the brink of death, but just in time, the hospital received a pair of donor lungs. They were a perfect match, and two days after arriving at UCLA, Mr. Saputo was breathing normally again. Much later, when Saputo opened a letter from Anthem, he discovered the helicopter company had charged the insurance carrier $51,282 for the 27-mile flight. Mr. Saputo was responsible for more than $11,000 of the bill, the portion his insurance carrier did not cover. By contrast, the charges from the day of his transplant surgery totaled slightly more than $40,000, including $31,000 for his surgeon, and were fully covered by Anthem. In California, Governor Gavin Newsom signed a bill in early October that will limit how much some privately insured patients will pay for air ambulance rides. Effective next year, the law will cap out-of-pocket costs at patients' in-network amounts, even if the air ambulance company is out of network. The state would cap out-of-pocket costs at 2% of the patient's income or $5,000, whichever is less. However, state authority is limited because the Federal Airline Deregulation Act of 1978 prohibits states from enacting price laws on air carriers. Congress is considering several bipartisan bills on surprise billing. One measure would ban balanced bills from air ambulance companies. This bill passed the committee and is now headed to the Senate floor for a vote pending approval from Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell of Kentucky. One response to the newly passed AB5 that declares most freelancers to be employees is that California freelancers need not apply to job listings. The new law may apply to golf caddies, exotic dancers, some freelance journalists, cable installers, bartenders, and most delivery drivers. The Recording Industry Association of America and the American Association of Independent Music feels that the California freelance musician may also be blacklisted. AB5 could make producers, engineers, musicians, publicists, and background vocalists full-time employees. According to the Freelancing in America survey, there is a reported 57 million American freelancers contributing an excess of $1 trillion to the economy each year. And California-based freelance writers are now cast as industry pariah by some employers. The newspaper The Hollywood Reporter claims that many publications are going to avoid working with California freelancers to avoid potential lawsuits. They've admitted to already seeing SEO, 
Transcription and Writing Job Notices explicitly state that California freelancers will not be considered. The exemption for freelance journalists contains what some say is a potentially career-ending requirement for a writer to remain a freelancer. If a freelance journalist writes for a magazine, newspaper, or other entity whose central mission is to disseminate the news, the law says that a journalist is capped at writing 35 submissions per year per putative employer. Many publications that employ California freelancers are not based in the state, and it's not clear how AB5 will affect them. Still, some are choosing to opt out entirely. Indeed, several freelance writers say that various out-of-state employers, some with offices in California, have already told them they're cutting ties with California freelancers. Several job notices in transcription, blogging, and SEO writing that have have explicitly stated that California freelancers will not be considered. Large California-based news media brands are still figuring out the logistics of how they will comply with the law. The San Diego Union-Tribune is in the process of sorting through the implications right now. It suspects a number of freelancers will end up with less work as a result of the 35-piece limit. Meanwhile, national outlets are remaining mostly silent publicly. And in other news, a Reuters investigation concluded that courtroom courtroom secrecy hires public safety information. It found that judges regularly allow information pertinent to public health and safety to be filed under seal, even though court documents are by law presumed to be public. In nearly all jurisdictions, judges are required to provide an on-the-record rationale for allowing litigants to file information under seal, for example, to protect trade secrets or an individual's medical records. In its analysis, Reuters found that information pertinent to public health and safety was filed under seal in 55 of the 115 biggest product liability cases consolidated in federal courts over the past 20 years. These mega-cases, known as multi-district litigation, involve products used by millions of consumers. And the secrecy, they claim, exacts a heavy toll. In just a handful of cases that were analyzed, hundreds of thousands of people were killed or seriously injured by allegedly defective products, including cars, drugs, and guns, after judges allowed litigants to file evidence that could could have alerted consumers and regulators to potential dangers under seal. Secrecy is baked into the process early on. During pretrial discovery, when the opposing sides request information from each other to prepare their cases, the defendant usually will not give plaintiffs any information until they agree to a protective order. In theory, these agreements are meant to keep under wraps potentially damaging proprietary or personal information. But in many cases, nearly everything ends up being stamped confidential, and plaintiff lawyers often just agree to the secrecy without any complaint. Later, when the plaintiff's lawyers begin filing motions or presenting their cases in court, the standard for imposing secrecy moves higher. 
materially obtained through discovery that is later submitted as evidence becomes part of the court record as a matter of law. Litigants must provide a reason for submitting such evidence under seal, and the judge must approve it. Judges rarely ask for a more specific rationale for the secrecy, so documents marked as confidential remain so. That's true and the parties settle, which is how most product liability cases end. It can also be true after a jury decides in favor of the plaintiff. Sometimes plaintiff lawyers even agree to keep evidence confidential that has already been aired in open court in other cases. And lawyers who do fight secrecy seldom succeed. They challenge defendants' claims of confidentiality for material relating to public health and safety in 23 of the 55 big cases Reuters analyzed. Judges nearly always refuse to unseal the evidence. Yet, potentially harmful flaws in many products remain secret years after the first lawsuits have been filed. The World Health Organization recently recognized occupational burnout as a legitimate health syndrome. While that may sound a bit excessive at first glance, consider the results of a recent survey involving 2,000 working Americans. A shocking 36% of respondents reported dealing with feelings of on-the-job burnout every single week. Another 56% say they get burnt out on the job at least once a month. Only 12% of surveyed employees say they have never felt burnt out while working in their current position. The survey also revealed that roughly 4 in 10 employees deal with weekly health issues brought on by job-induced burnout. More specifically, 40% suffer from anxiety regularly. 44% report feeling exhausted on a weekly basis, and 56% say that intense feelings of stress have become part of their weekly routine. All of that burnout is creeping into other areas of people's lives as well, with 54% of respondents saying their sleep patterns have suffered due to burnout. 44% say their work or life balance has been impacted, 37% have become less ambitious in their career motivations, and 36% have seen their overall productivity drop. And it isn't just the employees who are paying for all of this burnout. Sick days and loss of personnel is also costing many businesses. In all, 34% of respondents say they take a day off at least every six months due to burnout. And nearly half say... Their job satisfaction has taken a blow due to burnout. In fact, over half of the respondents have already considered leaving their job. Another two-thirds are worried that all of that stress, anxiety, and exhaustion is going to do their bodies harm in the long term. Among the survey's other findings was that healthcare workers are experiencing burnout symptoms at greater rates than other professions. According to data in the new Workers' Compensation Benefits, Costs, and Coverage Report, which is produced annually by the National Academy of Social Insurance, benefits paid to injured workers continued to decline while covered employment and wages continue to rise. 
Employee coverage has increased fairly steadily over the past two decades, but employer costs have fallen from just over $1.50 per $100 of covered wages in 1997 to $1.25 in 2017. Worker benefits also decreased even more from $1.17 20 years ago to $0.80 per $100 of covered wages in 2017. This year's report shows that the trends that have dominated the workers' compensation system for the past three years, declines in both workers' benefits and employers' costs, continue to be sustained. To the extent that costs of benefits have fallen because of improved safety at work, that of course is good news. However, however, the report says there is also evidence that suggests that many injured workers are not receiving the cash benefits or medical care they need, and that some states are achieving lower benefits by shifting costs rather than improving safety. So that is all of our news and our events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, your iPad, or your Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. And we also publish our daily news, our podcast, and other utilities on our free WorkCompApps.com smartphone app. Again, I'm Renee Foles with Floyd Scarin, Manuki, and Langevin. Thanks for joining us today. Please drop by again next week for more news.